Hello, and welcome to Someday We'll All Be Dead, a podcast where we talk about all the things with a social work perspective. I'm your host, Hallie Harris, and I am a hospice social worker. Today, we're going to talk about moral distress, and there's many different forms of that. We get into the definition and how that relates to families and caregivers, care providers. We uh, get into discussion with Michael Drain, who is a psychotherapist. He is a professor at Antioch University in Seattle, and he's also working on his doctorate. And he is also the host of Unpopular Culture Podcast, which is an amazing podcast with many different topics that aren't often covered on other podcasts, so it's worth a listen. So thanks for joining us today, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Good evening, Michael Drain. Hello, Hallie. <laughs> How are you tonight? I'm good. I'm just uh, done teaching and uh, getting ready to talk to you. Well, we're here today to talk about moral distress. I have yeah. Michael Drain from the Unpopular Culture Podcast with me. Thank you so much you sure for. Do, Allie. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today. I really You're wanted to pick your brain about the places that you've worked. Um, it's come up a lot at my work in the last few months, particularly. And I wanted to read off a definition of moral distress. It was interesting to me that we were kind of using that term as a catch-all, and it's not really what it originally was intended to mean. Um, So the moral distress definition from the AMA Journal of Ethics that I found uh, says that comes from a highly influential definition from some person named Andrew Jameton, that occurs when a nurse knows the morally correct action to take, but is constrained in some way from taking the action. And the definition has now been broadened to include morally challenging situations that give rise to distress and is now not limited to nurses. Uh, That was really interesting for me to see that most of the moral distress definitions prior to this article, really, which was only a year or two ago, only included nurses. Does that surprise you? Yeah, that's, it does. It's, it's kind of fascinating, actually. I didn't, uh, I didn't know that either, that it had such a narrow scope in its origins. I knew that it, that it originally came out of nursing. It did not that. But, yeah, the way I teach it in developmental psych is the one that we, and just, you know, in passing, because anybody in healthcare is going to have uh, moral conundrums or whatever you want to call them where you're faced with the situation, especially in psych, uh, you face the situations all the time with patients that are, that, uh, you know, they have, they're doing something or something is happening that's not entirely in line with more personal uh, morals or ethics, and it's, it's, it's extremely taxing on you. It's, you know, it's probably one of the main contributors to burnout, I would think. Yeah. But yeah, that's how I define it, is a wider scope of, uh, you could say moral distress is more like a moral uh, dilemma of some kind, something that goes against your values. Actually, I define it as it's like an individual's moral integrity when it's seriously compromised, either because a person feels like they're unable to act in accordance with their values, or or they've tried to, but their actions have failed to achieve the outcome that they're looking for. Yeah, exactly. I I use the word moral distress as a catch-all because I think people have a pretty good idea of what they feel like that means, but moral... The definition specifically of moral is really more right or wrong or good or bad, 
Whereas like you're talking about values is more about importance or worth or usefulness to yourself, a personal individual standard of behavior. And so yeah. that's how I would define it. Totally. Yeah, me too. And, and morals are subjective, right? They, they vary depending on who, the individual, the group you're in, the culture you're in. But it's at the, board, the bottom line when you're looking at morals, what are the common denominators? Because we all have different morality from person to person, but it's a, it's a societal function. Morality is created, like Freud would say, morality is created as a societal check to keep us from all, you know, killing each other, basically, <laughs> right. and, and accessing our, our carnal nature, you know. So morality really boils down to a concern for others, a sense of justice and fairness and trustworthiness a sense of self-control in society. These are things that, no matter what your morality is, these are things that you can, these are common denominators that we can agree on. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to put that definition out there because I'm just going to continue to use the term moral distress in this talk, but I wanted people to understand where we were coming from with that. Yeah. The things that have been coming up for us, I think, one of the biggest things, and it's funny, it, it did, it does kind of stem from the nursing side. And I have some theories on that. Uh, but it's affecting many different people within our agency is caregiving. Yeah, well, I, I think historically speaking, nurses are, have always been on the front line when it comes to patients. Mm-hmm. Nurses are, are old, one of the oldest professions. The doctors tend to be sort of once removed, you know, the nurses, if you go into an ER, there's one doctor and 20 nurses. Right, <laughs> and right. They, you know, they're the ones that are sort of on the front line. So mm-hmm. it totally makes sense that that this started in nursing, but by no means is it exclusive to nursing therapists uh, and anybody in healthcare. Anytime you're doing a job where you're, you're giving something of yourself or you're responsible for taking care of people, uh, you know, I think you run a serious risk of, moral conundrums, and really, who hasn't been in some kind of moral dilemma, moral distress of some kind at some point in their life? I think that's very universal and relatable. Yeah, absolutely. And caregiving specifically seems to be the one that triggers our staff the most. Uh, There certainly are other ones that we'll talk about, but uh, caregiving for our hospice patients, and I know you've had some experience in hospice, so perhaps you've had this similar thing where families either don't have any caregiving or they don't have what someone would deem as enough caregiving. And again, that's a values judgment of, you know, when we're looking at it as a social worker or as uh, spiritual care or something on that side, we're looking at it from the self-determination and autonomy side, whereas they're looking at it as, as a fall risks med management issue. But and and there, right there is more subjective talk to you because things, concepts like self determination and individualism that's a very American individualized culture perspective right. on things, isn't it? Yeah, very Other true. Other cultures might not they have different values. They value collectivism or community more, even more than independence and autonomy. Mm-hmm. That is a very good point. <laughs> Uh, I think the majority of the patients that we've had trouble with live in a more rural community and they're used to being um, upriver, shall we say, and more independent. And they don't want people in or 
they have either no kids or limited family or they have a strain on the family, you know, some other reason that they don't have anyone else involved. And it's really hard for some of the staff to accept that there might not ever be caregiving in those scenarios, no matter what we want for them. (laughs) Right. Yeah, you know, with terminal illness, I think that's where you find a lot of the moral conundrums that society faces. I think of Jack Horkian in the 90s, mm-hmm. the doctor that would do assisted suicide, for example, how controversial that is, and how one side would say it's humane, and if somebody doesn't want to continue their life because they're sick, that's their choice. And another person might say something totally opposite, and neither one is correct or incorrect. They're simply subjective moral values. But I think with hospice care, you find a lot of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question, like, uh, do you remember the Terry Schiavo case? Oh, uh, yes. Uh, yeah, like brain dead, right? And and essentially um, just hooked up to support machines that were keeping our alive. And the whole country was in uproar about that. Is it, do we terminate care? Is, is it killing somebody if we do that? Or should we keep our lives? Is that the right thing to do? And, you know, there's no... There's no answer. There's no objective answer anyway. Yeah, that just uh, reminds me to remind listeners to please, please, please complete and update your advanced directives and your healthcare power of attorney because that was part of the problem is that her husband was making decisions for her because of the decision-making hierarchy. She didn't have a healthcare power of attorney and her parents felt like they should be the ones And so that was what a lot of the outrage was, is that she hadn't written down her wishes. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we're all going to have our own opinion on it. Some people are like, well, if I'm ever in that vegetative state or something like that, I don't care. Just do what you will. It's not like I'm going to know about it. I Mm -hmm. won't be aware of it. Other people might have very different religious or spiritual inclinations where you feel like, you know, some people would say my soul is being trapped in this body if it's not being used. Or it's wrong to die uh, by a, what, what would be a assisted suicide, is how some people might see it. But but the point is, if you, if you feel strongly about this, the best thing you can do is to make an advanced directive so that people people know yes. exactly what you want. And, and that decision doesn't fall on somebody else. Because that's, you know, that's, that's a hard decision for your loved ones to have to make too and if you have made the decision for them not only are you ensuring your wishes are fulfilled but you in a way I think you're making it easier on them too you know the decision you're making the decision for them you're telling them what you want rather than having them have it to figure it out and, and maybe wrestle with the guilt of whatever decision they come up with exactly and people need to be not only writing down their wishes in something like an advanced directive or for in our state the five wishes booklet but also to choose someone that you think is going to respect your wishes whatever they are regardless of their own beliefs yeah totally i completely agree another morally distressing situation that we ran into was someone that was decompensating mentally And this uh, has been a particular challenge, especially as we have more and more patients with personality disorders and other mental health uh, disturbances as well. But this particular one, I believe, was a a side effect of a personality disorder. And they kind of had a um, 
a manic episode. And then after about a week of that, really decompensated and they were living on their own. And at some point were basically just having word salad, not able to complete sentences, had some moments of unresponsiveness even, or wouldn't get off the floor. And it was really hard because these people, some staff didn't understand that I couldn't just call APS or the DMHPs, the designated mental health providers, because they weren't going to take that person in. And even if they did, is that really a better quality of life for them as opposed to what they had told me before was I want to be, you know, I want to stay in my own place. Yeah. Um, and it's, and yeah, so I had the job. So here in Washington state, they're called designated mental health professionals or DMHPs. And it's a specific kind of clinician and their sole job is to go around the city and do psych evaluations with this person that you're talking about and decide if they should be committed to a hospital or not. And they have the power to involuntarily commit you against your will so long as you meet certain circumstances. And so I had this job in Arizona. They don't have DMHPs. Any clinician can do this job, but uh, I did this for Mm. quite a while. I went around the city and and went to ERs and, and emergency rooms, and doctors would order psych evaluations because they didn't know what was going on with the patient, so they'd <laughs> call me, and I would show up and then and, and make that determination. So I've seen a lot of a lot of examples, and it's it's kind of scary how, how often it's not super clear. There's It's sort of a gray nebulous area. Should this person be into a hospital or not, and when you really sit and think about what you're talking about, I mean, you're talking about removing the rights of another person and incarcerating them, essentially, in a, right. in a mental hospital where they, where they might have forced medications, uh, forced injections of antipsychotic medications, and, or be strapped to a bed, perhaps, for their own safety. You know, somebody with a history of trauma sexual trauma, for example, somebody being held down on a bed against their will. You know, you can see how, how this would relive and re-traumatize certain people. So these decisions are not to be taken lightly, and they have extreme consequences. Right, and they have pretty strict rules about when you can and can't detain people, which I think sometimes sometimes people that haven't been through that or aren't, aren't on that side of the mental health world don't understand those standards. Um, yeah. I hadn't really been through it. Right. And so I called just to kind of debrief the situation, not to call for uh, a referral or an examination, but just to say, you know, what kind of, what am I looking at and what would it look like if you did come out? And it was, you know, staffed with a supervisor and all this. Cause I also was, you know, feeling uncomfortable with this person being by themselves and um, in some of the states that they were. And, but it wasn't, it was my problem. It wasn't their problem. Hmm. If that makes sense. Well, I don't, I don't know anything. I don't know much about the case. Uh, it sounds like they were in a manic episode and that can be dangerous. Mania can lead to impulsive behaviors, suicide, or, um, you know, so people become very aggressive uh, they can be a danger to themselves or somebody else, potentially, when they're in a manic episode. But really, 
there's three main criteria for determining if somebody should be in a psych hospital. If they're suicidal, or they're homicidal, or psychotic. But even then, not all psychosis is criteria for... I've let a lot of people go where they were psychotic, but they weren't a danger to themselves or anybody else. Mm -hmm. And so insurance wouldn't pay for it. And there was no legal standing, no legal ground to admit them against their will. And they didn't want to go voluntarily, and so you have no grounds. You have no you have no, no leg to stand on. Even though internally you might be feeling that this person would be better off getting some treatment in a controlled environment, and even with all the authority you have, you can't always actually make those decisions when you want to. Because you have to justify them. You have to back them up. Right. And you still have to think about, is it really better for that person, or does it just make you feel better that they're not alone? Yeah, sure, right. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and, and actually, the part of the plan can be to, you know, okay, I, I won't commit you, but we need to get a safety plan in place, so you we're going to get you standing at your mom's house or staying with your husband or, what you know, some kind of support in place so that when I leave, Yes, I feel better about leaving, and also I can, I have some kind of safety plan in place to know that we at least tried to move you in a safer direction. Yeah, that was kind of the tricky part for this individual. They did not have, um, they had the partial Medicaid program where they didn't have the healthcare piece, they only had the financial piece. And so there wasn't any option for a placement or a caregiving, not that that person would have accepted it anyway. And they didn't have any family, they didn't have any close friends, and so it was pretty isolated. And also this person had chose to be that way. And, you know, a lot of that, there was a lot of past trauma, and putting someone somewhere that they don't know in a state like that, it, it was actually after the manic state when... They came down from it. That was the part where they were worried that meds weren't being taken or, you know, were they even eating? Could they call for help if they needed to? And it still didn't meet the level of that involuntary commitment. And I think that's what people were really struggling with. And it brought up like, well, what if someone has dementia and they're living alone? You know, at what point can they be involuntarily put into memory care? Well, so if they, for example, if they have dementia, then once they're diagnosed with dementia, it's pretty pretty par for the course to enroll a power of attorney. It's usually a next of kin or somebody, because that person is, depending on how advanced their dementia is, you do an assessment on that and you figure out, are they able to, are they competent to represent themselves? As And if they're not, then that, you know, that gets passed down to a next of kin, and if there is no next of kin, it gets it gets assigned to a social worker or some kind of power of attorney through the government, but somebody is there to take over. So if somebody was extremely advanced dementia and in their house and not able to take care of themselves, that's another criteria that can, that can uh, get somebody admitted if they're not performing their ADLs well. Like, um, they can't shower themselves, they can't feed themselves they can't meet their own basic needs, then you can consider that a danger to themselves. And that is, can be grounds for, you know, admission. And that's good <laughs> because because people with advanced dementia can be, you know, pretty honorary and pretty confused and pretty uh, aggressive sometimes. 
And so they might not want to go. They can be very paranoid. Dementia looks a lot like psychosis mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think it's that in-between ground when they still are able to feed themselves or take a shower, but they may be a severe fall risk, for example, and can't always remember to take their medications or call for help. And But they're still able to really dress themselves and feed themselves. And so it's that in-between time when they wouldn't really meet criteria, but it's giving other people distress. Yeah, for sure. And, and with dementia especially, like we know it's generative. We know it's going to get worse, not better. Mm-hmm. And so what, I, what I've seen in the past in situations like that is, you know, yes, Joe or Sally is able to take care of themselves at this moment. However, this is a degenerative disease that's going to get worse. And so we need to keep an eye on them and monitor the point when they can't take care of themselves anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you put sort of an action plan in place. So as that person starts to deteriorate, somebody can step in. Or even better, while that person is still lucid, they're able to sign over their rights to their daughter or son or husband or whatever someone they uh, choose that's kind of the best case somebody they trust and it's it, their own decision you know right that's kind of the best case scenario mm-hmm. yeah i know you used to work in an inpatient facility and that oh, yeah, must have in a bunch of them. yeah that must have had some distressing situations for not only family members but for the care team Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, countless examples. There, you know, but somebody would have court-ordered medications um, because they have a history of psychosis, and when they're psychotic, they, you know, they've attacked people in the past, and so the court has stepped in and mandated that they get injections, and that's hard to watch. Somebody who is doesn't fully understand why, you're, why they're being held down and injected with what, in their psychotic mind, they might think it's poison, or they might think... You know, I, I remember having to restrain one person, and they just thought they were being raped, and they kept saying that, and mm-hmm. I was one of the people holding them down. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, we were trying to keep them safe, but they felt like they were being assaulted, and the, the secondary, not the secondary trauma, but the trauma that you get from being a part of that, the guilt, you know, um, but you, it's, it's, you know, the, the job is full of gray decisions like that, where there's no clear-cut answer. Whenever I would do psych evals, it was very rare that, you know, they were obviously needed to go in or they didn't. Most of the time, it was a, it was a judgment call, a clinical judgment call. Mm-hmm. Did, how did your staff and you in particular deal with situations like that? Did you have, like, staff debriefings that you could support each other in those situations? Yeah, I mean, debriefing is kind of the staple for people in, um, those, and that work in that setting. So debriefing, for people who don't know, is about uh, talking about what happened and processing the traumatic event after you went through it. There's a story about a little kid who was like maybe five or something, and he was, he was at the base of the towers during 9-11. And obviously a lot of people were traumatized by that event. But this five-year-old boy was able to escape the, the, the towers, escape the area, get to safety, and then talk with his parents. And he actually drew a uh, picture of people falling out of the tower, but he had drew, he had drew a trampoline at the bottom of the floor. Oh, my and, gosh. And people asked him, 
And they asked him, you know, why did you do that, Billy? And he said, well, that's so next time people can can land on the trampoline and be safe. And I had not heard the story. That, right, yeah. It's, you know, and essentially what's happening is because he was able to get to safety and process or debrief what had happened and get those get that experience out and externalized, and then he even went on to create a corrective experience where there's a trampoline and people are safe. Because he was able to do that, he didn't go on to have symptoms of PTSD or anything like that later on. So debriefing is extremely powerful. And common practice, you know, in mental hospitals. So uh, you mentioned the giving the shots, and one of the things that has come up uh, for our nurses is that family members will sometimes request medication more for sedation than symptom management, which, again, feels like an ethical and, and morally distressing situation because that's not what we're there for. We're there to manage symptoms. Now, if one of their right. symptoms is sleep disturbance and they're having, you know, they're upset about that, that's something that they are stating as a problem, the, the person, the patient, then, yes, of course, we want to help them um, get some sleep. But <clears throat> if it's the family member that is trying to use medication for sedation in lieu of caregiving support, uh, that yeah. that can be very challenging, I think. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the family with the best of intentions can really screw up treatment because they don't exactly know what they're doing. But all they know is their loved one's in trouble. Mm-hmm. And they want to help, but you know, really, that it, your family can request medications and stuff all day long, but they're not the prescribing doctor. And ultimately, it comes down to the doctor making that decision. The, the parents or the family can't decide that they want to give their relative Thorazine in the hospital, and the doctor has to comply. That's not you know, that's not how that works. So, while it would be morally distressing to go through that, there is a there is a rule, a steadfast rule, of safeguard against uh, family making that sort of that sort of call. Well, and in the hospital, that's a lot easier to manage. But when you're out yeah. in someone's home, you know, yes, we right. you, we're you know we're managing how many meds they're using and making sure they're using them in the correct and prescribed way. But we're not yeah. there all the time. You know, we don't know what, right. what they're really doing. You know, if it's not a lot of meds, then it may be a little harder to detect. Yeah, and, you know, I, I just all these all these examples are rushing to my mind as we're talking about this. Especially in the emergency room. If somebody came in, family member comes in, and they're, they're manic to the point where they're psychotic or, you know, they're, they're sort of out of their minds at the time. And the family's there too, and maybe the you know the, we have to put the person in a restraint because they're they're so out of control, and the family member is there, and all they see is like, what are you doing to my husband? And they and they're you're, you have to strap them down, you have to get the medications, and the family member is screaming like, don't do this, don't stop, stop, stop. But and she doesn't understand that you don't have a choice. So there, that there is no. As far as safety goes, there's no other option. We can't just let him continue to, you know, bang his head against the wall or run naked down the hallway or and, and punch people or whatever might be happening. Right. But, uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a good, for good reason that family can't always.
always make those calls if there's somebody there because, you know, they're so emotionally invested and they're so upset. They might not be making the best decisions anyway. Yeah. I think that's why it's so important for us to continue to discuss boundaries as well within our team and use our team discussions to utilize other team members so that they can balance out their own distress with situations similar to that. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm remembering a story about a baby that was born um, one point, like a pound and a half. Oh, my goodness. Baby was. Yeah, so premature that their, the baby's brain was really not really developed to the point where they wouldn't, they, the baby wasn't really able to breathe on its own. It didn't have a lot of cognitive abilities. It was essentially brain dead, but just, just functional enough that with assisted equipment, it, you know, the baby could stay alive. Mm-hmm. And the, par- the medical team gave the parents a choice and essentially said, like, you know, your baby's going to be on a respirator and brain dead its whole life. What do you want to do? And they, because of religious reasons, if I remember correctly, said, you know, we can't, uh, we can't, we can't take our child's life. We can't do that. And so uh, the, the family had a lower income. They lived maybe three hours away from the hospital. It was a very uh, rural area. And so the family came to see the baby less and less uh, over time. And the staff essentially wound up having a lot of moral distress because of the situation. Mm. Because a lot of staff, some of the nurses and the clinicians Whoever felt like you know the, the same sort of conundrum. It's like this baby is is should not be a, um, shouldn't have to have this kind of existence, and it, it seems wrong. And then another another group is saying, you know, we can't end his life. That would be that would be wrong too. So right. where's the truth? And as the staff, you are you're wrestling with this. This is your job. You're gonna you're gonna work there for eight or twelve hours, and then you're gonna go home, and you're gonna try to live a life and not take this home with you. That is a skill unto itself. So when it comes to moral distress and how to resolve it, I think it I think it helps to first of all know what your own set of morality is. What do you believe? What are your values? And to honor those and respect those, but to also have a you know a very Star Trek kind of view where. Every, there's different cultures, there's different walks of life, everybody feels differently, and, and as the clinician, we're not in the, it's not our job to tell people how to live their lives or what they should believe. Our job is to support and try to make a difference in that way. And to check our own bias and our own morality at the door and realize that we are one of many opinions. Do you think that's easier for us in the mental health field, social workers and therapists in various degrees because it is part of our training and I don't know that that whole part is a big part of any other kind of medical assistance training like aides or nurses do you know what I'm saying yeah well okay so you're saying clinicians mental health clinicians compared to nurses might have more training in thinking about these kinds of issues but then again this you know the, the whole concept of moral conundrums came out of nursing, right? So right. it's not like they don't exist. And I've taken plenty of classes 
with nurses and all medical staff, myself included, where we've done crisis training and, um, you know, self-care management. And um, I think we might have to deal with it more often because we are exclusively dealing with mental health, whereas nurses, for example, maybe 80 or 90 percent of the patients they see, uh, this kind of thing doesn't really come up. Maybe they're being treated for a broken leg or something and there's no moral conundrum there. Sure. Uh, but, but, but we, especially in the, as a DMHP or doing psych evaluations like I was doing, that is your job. You are making that call. So it's, it's falls squarely on you. And so I think, I think you either get used to it or it, it can eat, it can eat you up. You know, it's, it's this, it's this shield. It's this fine line of being a clinician means, uh, having empathy enough to care, but not so much that you are taken down by every heartbreak that you see because if you really allowed yourself to absorb all the all the chaos and all the damage that's out there that you see you know I think it I think it overwhelms people I think that's probably one of the main reasons for burnout is exactly what we're talking about yeah I completely agree I think one of the things too that's come up with our staff has been that it's a very different setting in hospice when you're going out to see a patient as opposed to, um, for example, being in a hospital where in the hospice setting, you're kind of seen and maybe feel like you need to be the expert because you're the only one there. And when you're in a hospital setting, you know, the doctor is seen as the expert and everything is kind of referred back to them. You're never alone in that scenario. Whereas in a hospital well, setting, you're dis- you're out there by I, yourself. Then again, I might, I might disagree because I think well, it probably depends on the job. It depends on the place. But I, my experience, my own personal experience, doctors would often call me for a psych, like a doctor, a medical ER doctor has the power and the authority to admit somebody and do all the things that I do, at least in Arizona. But um, but they want that second opinion. And some of them have straight up told me, you know, they're they're getting that second opinion for a, from a liability standpoint. Mm. So that if something does happen, they can say, well, I called a psych evaluation, I called an expert, and that's what they determined. So it's not on me. Mm-hmm. And so for better and for worse, it, it comes, it winds up being a, sometimes, I'm not saying all doctors are like this, but I've run into some where they're just simply covering their own ass. Makes sense. Yeah. The last one that I wrote down here that I wanted to discuss with you is the issue of force feeding. And when I say force feeding, I don't necessarily mean, you know, you're, you're taking their mouth and holding it open and shoving the food down it. But um, families that will continue to uh, encourage strongly (laughs) that their loved ones eat. And in particular in facilities, and I think that's a regulatory problem that, even if the patient's not asking for it, you're still offering it. Um, and that can be particularly distressing for staff, especially for hospice patients, because towards the end of life, your body will stop wanting or needing that food and fluid, and it actually becomes, starts to become painful or uncomfortable to take in those kind of nutrients because you're not processing it anymore. And, you know, food is love, right? So that's really hard for families in particular to let go of if that's been a big part of their lives. And that's, that's cultural too. There's stronger ties to food in some cultures. So what do you think about that? 
So it, you know, if uh, if uh, it's food is love, like you said. So if your 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 mom is dying, um, of, you know, maybe she has dementia, or maybe she's dying of something else, or who knows. And it's part of your family to make that special casserole that you you all make, and that's how you. That's what you always do when you get together, and you try to make it for mom, and you bring it to the hospital, and she can't or won't eat it, and she might be too out of her mind to even articulate that she doesn't want the food or that it's painful to eat. She might simply turn away or be almost childlike about it or, or just refuse it. And that can be extremely traumatizing to the family who's, who already is pretty powerless. Their loved one is dying in a hospital. There's nothing they can do about it. And then they bring in this food and it's a way to share an experience with their loved one in a way that they always did. And now they've lost that too. And the person doesn't want it. <laughs> and that can be really confusing if you don't understand that dementia, you know, robs a person of their, of their memory and their, their orientation to the world and that it's not, it's not personal, you mm-hmm. know, but, but totally. And, and it can be, yeah, it can be super distressing. And it's it's hard to watch. And and other symptoms or other diagnoses, you have people that are in hospitals that just simply refuse to eat. Paranoid schizophrenia, for example, somebody wouldn't eat for days and days and days and days because everything, every food they saw, they thought was poisoned by the staff. Mm. And so this person started to dramatically lose weight to the point where you know they're they're and so the doctor would put them on a high fat diet. And like, okay, <laughs> but, you know, they're still not eating. And so the hospital has this liability issue of, okay, if this person starves to death under our care and the family comes looking for an explanation and tries to sue us because this person died because they starved to death, then, you know, that's one thing. But on, at the same time, if we hold them down and force feed them or stick a feeding tube in their stomach, then that's a loss of that person's freedom, and we could get in trouble for that, too. It becomes a very lose-lose scenario. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Were there any other pertinent um, items of moral distress that you were thinking of that we didn't talk about already? Oh, jeez. You know, just for clinicians out there listening, just spend some time thinking about ways to manage your own burnout and know that you're going to come into these these situations of moral distress and on one hand try to take a, a, a global perspective and, and know that people don't, all, not everybody agrees with your values and part of your job as a clinician is to be as unbiased and as unburdened of your own subjectivity as you can but then, you know, you're also going to see things that are just disturbing to anybody and are going to play on your sense of morality. And for that, you need to find ways to uh, find things that recharge you, find things that, that bring you back, things that are just for you. And find ways to engage in your morality. If you are a religious person, you can you can get involved in your religion as a, as a counteract, or you can do something that, that helps bolster your sense of your sense of morality, the things that matter to you. You can you don't have to give up your values. You just have to respect other people's. Yeah. And the and and just to know that the mental health system is woefully broken. <laughs> there is 
there it is, and and there's a lot of screwed up situations. We've talked about a few of them in this conversation where there is no clear cut easy answer. It's 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 an ugly situation no matter what we do, and you're going to see those situations, and it's it's the result of a you know decades of unfixed mental health care, and 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 if you really want to make a difference, get involved in legislation, join the AMHCA or some conference or some some board and try to advocate for legislation for some of the things you see, you know, what Gandhi said, be the change that you want to see in the world. Yeah, absolutely. There's no way to avoid chaos all the time. And I think that's great advice. If you want to make some change, go make some action. Because if you don't, nothing's going to change. If we all think someone else is going to do that action, then nothing's going to happen. That's right, Hallie. That's right. (laughs) Well, if you get a chance, um, my podcast that is an episode that's posting tomorrow, Sunday the 17th, is an episode about pediatric hospice. And I think it's got some really great advice. We don't specifically talk about moral distress, but obviously that's a distressing, difficult situation. And he has some amazing philosophies. And just even if you catch the last... Uh, say 10 minutes of it he kind of ends on three tenets of how to get through the world um, with that kind of turmoil and stress so I think if you can get through a child dying then those three tenets can get you through almost anything yeah yeah I mean on one hand whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger right and if you if you can use these situations to help build resiliency for yourself rather than how they eat you alive and you know you might be better stronger at least um it's a far easier said than done but what else are you going to do mm-hmm. you know, you're faced with the situation how are you going to handle it is the question yes any final thoughts today i loved your uh, advice about um, people going out and dealing with their own values and and finding that self-care i think consultation as well just consulting yep. with other professionals. Absolutely, yeah. Because you know, you, you, especially in that sort of job where you're making those moral decisions on behalf of strangers that you've never met before, you know, you can lose your perspective pretty easily, and you can start to feel like, did I make the right choice? And mm-hmm. with consultation, by talking with peers, and especially somebody who does exactly what you do, somebody who's an expert in that exact same way to validate your experience and to help you be like, no, you're okay. I would have done the same thing. Um, or, I, or no, don't do that. I think you should try this instead. It's the, it's the same reason group therapy is so effective because we get to realize that we're not alone in our situation, that other people are experiencing the same thing. So and definitely consult, especially if you don't know what, what to do. Yeah, in that same vein, it's nice to hear even if there's nothing you can do to change the situation, like, yes, I would have yeah. done that, or could you can try something different. But even to have someone validate, yeah, that sounds like a terribly distressing situation, and I get that it sucks. That It's kind of like answering to grief. There's really nothing you can say that's going to make it better, but you can empathize and walk the path with them and let them know that, yeah, this, this sucks, and I'm sorry. Right, and that goes that goes a lot farther than one might think. Uh, yeah, just to be heard and understood. Absolutely. And really, that's what we all want is to be understood. 
That is the ultimate goal, right? <laughs> that and Dick's Burgers. That and Dick's Burgers, yeah, which we have to do again soon. <laughs> well, Michael Jane, thank you so much for being with me on this episode and talking about your experiences. I think it's been helpful for me to hear, and I think it'll be helpful for other people, both family members and providers, to... It's just like consultation. They understand now that they're not alone. No, they're not. Whoever's listening to this, you're not alone. Somebody <laughs> else has been through your situation. You just need to talk to them about it. But, yeah, you're so welcome, Hallie. I'm, I'm happy to have been on your show. Thank you very much. Thank you. And everyone go check out Unpopular Culture, UPC. You can check them out on Facebook. You can get them anywhere the podcasts are, and it's well worth it. <laughs> Thanks, Hallie. Appreciate it. All right, that wraps up my interview with Michael Drain. Thanks again to him for his time and expertise. Please find us on Facebook at slash Someday Will All Be Dead, on Twitter at Someday Dead PC, and you can email us with any comments or thoughts at contact at willallbedeadpodcast.com. If you choose, please uh, rate, review, and subscribe so other people can find us and let us know how we're doing. I hope you are all able to find your own ways to deal with your moral distress in your own lives because there's no use in suffering more than you need to. This is a hard enough life as it is and we need to find better ways to cope because some days we'll all be dead.